episode of the podcast Start Worrying Details to Follow with me, Karin Pettersson from Aftonbladet. And me, Georg Dietz of the New Institute. As always, we're here to explore new ideas in democratic thinking, this time with the fantastic Lea Ippi, who is a fellow at the New Institute at the moment. And she's uh, celebrated uh, worldwide uh, with her new book, Free, Coming of Age, Uh, in the shadow of the Cold War. Yeah. And it's weird because on the one hand we're entering a new Cold War, one could say. We taped this uh, conversation just a few days, a day before the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. And we talked about that a bit off air, not on air. But I think it's interesting because in a way the 90s come back and we had talked a lot about the 90s in the economic sense and now they come back and some sort of security policy failure. Come back or maybe they are finally ending. And uh, Leah's book is about, it's a memoir uh, about growing up in Albania uh, during the Cold War and then also experiencing the fall of the Cold War as a teenager and the new, and experiencing a new regime uh, of freedom. And uh, it's an exploration of um, uh, her childhood, her family, family secrets, ideas of freedom connected to political ideologies and connected to human nature. And uh, it's also a provocation, I guess, uh, I would say. It's um, making the point that it's not clear what's the system that is um, able to produce more freedom for humans or to... Put it differently, neither socialism nor democracy in the present form that she wouldn't clearly call democracy or sort of yeah, deem democratic in its most original sense do provide freedom for for um, the citizens. So that's the um, um, yeah provocation I would say for complacent liberal democrats, uh, unlike us. And that's uh, the themes we also explored in this uh, in this conversation that I really, really, really enjoyed. And we started uh, with asking about her grandmother, who plays an important part in the book. So enjoy. Welcome to start worrying details to follow. The first question I think needs to go to your grandmother. Who was she and what role did you play in your life? Um, she was someone whose identity of birth was the identity of a unit that doesn't exist anymore. So she was born in Salonika, which was a, one of the most important Ottoman cities and one of the most multicultural cities in the world at the time in which she was born. And she was born there at the cusp of Salonika transitioning from being an Ottoman city with this multiculturalism where lots of different minorities, Muslim, Orthodox, Catholic, Jewish, was a very important Jewish center, coexisted to being a Greek city which identified with a particular national character. And so she was born in a place that had, was on its last 
years of existing as the place that her family had identified it with and whose identity was from the beginning uncertain because she never identified with Greece, with modern Greece. She always identified with this unit, the Ottoman Empire. She came from a family of uh, high elite administrators in the empire. Albania had a tradition of sending part of its elite to work for the empire and the interests of that territory, which wasn't even a country until very late, uh, were the interests of the empire. And so she was born there and very soon found that she didn't really belong in Salonika because Salonika had become something else from what she was, she, she had known it, and moved to Albania, which was a new country that had been founded, created, right after to coincide with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So Albania was a state that for many years the elites and the population thought it could coexist as a kind of semi-sovereign unit within the empire. And then when it became very clear that the Ottoman Empire had no future, Albanians had to find a future for themselves and to find their own political identity. And so the country became independent in 1912 and my, my grandmother moved to Albania for the first time in her life when she was 20 in the early um, last late late 20s early 30s to be part of the administration of the new Albanian state and to work for one of the very few liberal progressive one might say governments under a system that was at that point had gone from being controlled by this one particular highly authoritarian figure called Zog to him becoming the king of Albanians and um, and so to becoming a monarchy, and so she lived and worked in the monarchy. It was a very progressive family. Uh, we're a very progressive person coming from a conservative family, married someone who was also very progressive leftist, but also coming from a very conservative family. My great grandfather from my father's side was. Uh, uh, a minister and then a prime minister in the Albanian administration and was key to transferring at the point in which um, the Albanian state became a colony officially of Italy. My great-grandfather was pivotal in transferring the sovereignty of Albania to this new colonial unit. So she was, I'm talking about the history because in some ways her personal identity is shaped by the history of the country and, uh, and so this is her, let's say, pre-communist life was one of coming out of this context, this post-imperial context, into a new political country, a new political unit, uh, being progressive in a conservative environment. And then her life follows the fate, in a way, of the Albanian state. Um, she then, after the war, the socialists come to power and there is the beginnings of purges against leftist intellectuals and dissidents and politically active citizens and so my grandfather who was a socialist but not a communist gets sent to prison and my grandmother is a single mother and um, is deported from the capital city and so her life changes very quickly from being one of privilege wealth high office elite um, environment into someone who is having to follow a husband who is in prison for 15 years with a child as a single mother in the periphery in a rural environment doing field work and labor and so on and so this is the, her political and, and historical biography. Personally, she was extremely important for me because uh, it was incredible how someone who could have so many swings and roundabouts in her life and who went to what seemed to me when I, was, when I learned about her family history from being extremely privileged and wealthy um, to being deported and a pure victim of the communist system. One of the things that stood out for me about her was that she always insisted that she had she was free 
And when it was obvious that this was someone who had had all the freedom that one might associate to privilege and wealth and so on, to losing them and to being completely unfree, and she was on the surface paradigmatically the unfree, the oppressed person. And she was important because she insisted that she had always been free and the reason she thought she was free was that she said to me, dignity is something that we carry in ourselves and real freedom is the freedom to remain a moral agent regardless of the circumstances of your life. And so in that sense, she felt she had never lost her freedom and it was really important to me because in the way in which some, my life didn't go through the same extremes as her. But it went through fundamental changes, it went through systematic system changes, and it went through identity crises that were in some ways perhaps parallel. And she was really important to me in helping me navigate those kinds of crises with the help of this idea that whatever happens around you, you must somehow be in control of your fate. And the mm. only way to be in control of your fate is to remain a moral agent. We're just interested also in the story and what she meant to you, but also in the context of our conversation here, I think, which will have to do a lot with repression and resistance to that repression. And we were just wondering, and you hinted a bit at that, what's the, what's the, what can you learn from like being in a repressive system and, and, and being that moral agent? Is, is there something to develop from her example? I mean, the book is a lot about that. There's a lot of personal experience and personal lived experience. Mm, but is there a chord, something, yeah. a formula. And how, do, I mean, yeah, to your, to Georg's point, how did she do that? I mean, why, how did she keep that uh, mm. moral uh, agency and that freedom? Um, what, what do you think when you think about her? Is it education? Is it like an inner flame or is it some innate in human nature? How, what's mm. the, what's the space? And how do you, how do you keep that? Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think ultimately, especially in those circumstances, mm. it is an act of faith mm. in some way. And what's even more interesting is that, you know, people find hope in these extreme circumstances through faith. Mm. And many people often find this through faith in something else, you know, they think, they, they, they say, I believe in God, or I believe in some supernatural force that will help me. And, but it is ultimately a kind of act of commitment to a kind of belief about yourself and your position in the world and your freedom and so on. And I think for her, she had that faith and she had that hope, but it was never hope or faith in something other than the human being. And this again was also really important for me because at some point, I feel all of us are confronted with this question of what is human nature, what are people, and how do we think about these fundamental questions around good or evil. And I don't think there is a way of resolving it other than to believe in something, in a way, to make this commitment and to see if that commitment is then revealed in your day-to-day -day actions, in the way in which you engage with politics and with the world. And there's obviously two ways and in a book there's some some of that discussion when I for example compare my mother's worldview which is very different with hers because I think in in the case of my mother for example there is a similar discussion around what is human nature how do people relate to each other and in her case I think it's shaped by this fundamental skepticism about the fact that people can find the right ways of engaging with each other and it's always about creating incentives to make sure that they don't kill each other because ultimately they will always have a tendency to be envious or to channel these um, motives that aren't really moral motives. And 
as I say, I don't think there's a truth about human nature. Both things are true. It's true that humans can be both very nasty to each other, but also that they can relate in the right way to each other. And I think it's important for it, for, for us to make a commitment to thinking positively about human nature, because in thinking positively about human nature, you can also think positively about the future and you can engage with projects that enable you to channel that positivity and I think at the core of that positivity is this belief that ultimately it is within everyone's power to be moral and there are circumstances in which we see those examples of morality and you know the heroes that we revere and that we remember or the people that we look up to when we think about the history of humans are often examples of people who did the right thing even under severe constraints and so and so that shows that it's not impossible. And in not being impossible, it shows that you can think about the future with that positivity in mind. Mm. And that was her stance, ultimately. And for you, I mean, you would quote the Marx statement in your book that people are shaped by the systems that they live in. So, so that's a quite realistic and, and counter, not, not against hope statement, but it's, it's the broad sense in, in people's lives that it's repressive. Um, what's for what's what's the sort of view uh, on today for you the, the systems that you live in today what's what are the mechanisms of repression that you would see at work um, um, how do you react to that so i think some of it is obviously society specific and context specific and within each context that are there are both patterns of unfreedom and possibilities of freedom i think as i see it in this kind of society i live in the united kingdom now and you know i'm part of europe and european discussions i think in europe there are now kinds of unfreedom that are perhaps more similar to the structural unfreedoms that i mentioned at the very end of the book where you don't have an agent that necessarily intends to repress people or an institution that is necessarily acting in a way that is repressive or is censoring freedom of movement or is interfering directly with people's choices and so on but I think there are patterns that generate forms of unfreedom that we sometimes naturalize them because we don't think about structures as generators of unfreedom. We tend to think only of people and agents as responsible for the unfreedom of other people. And that's what makes us blind, I think, to the fact that if you see inequality or if you see unequal opportunities, or if you see exclusion in the form of the exclusion of migrants, for example, or exclusion of particular minorities from the public sphere, we naturalize those exclusions because we can't find someone who is immediately responsible for them. And we are also, I think we have lost the habit of thinking that a structure can be responsible for these exclusions, even if there is no direct individual that is responsible for the creation of that structure. And in fact, structures are often appear like that. They appear as a result of unintended consequences of interactions, which might even be well-meaning at the start. They might start as a project of freedom, or they might start as an idea of emancipation that replaces an outdated idea of repression. And I think it's important that we maintain that critical distance and that we can call out unfreedom even when it's produced by structures. But do you think that's also a consequence of uh, the times we live in in the sense that before the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the 90s there were two competing I mean, systems or structures um, uh, competing for with each other for um, both, um, <laughs> both the geopolit ge ge geopolitics but also for um, 
uh, in terms of ideas. And uh, I mean, you can argue that at the end of the Cold War, one idea was one, one more or less dead, but at, at least there, w- there was a competition in the field of ideas. And now there's just one... Um, it's not like that anymore. Do you think that may, in itself makes it more makes it more difficult for us to think about sea structures because there's no competition around structure? Yeah, I certainly think that's what happened yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. I think there was a sense that there was this set of ideas that was replaced fully by this other set of ideas. And because there was nothing else in the ideational space, mm. you had to take this set of ideas that won or that we thought won with the good and the bad. And I think that's also what led to this naturalization of the types of unfreedom that that structure generated Mm. is this sense that, okay, if you don't like this kind of unfreedom, do you really want to go back to the past? And I think it was a type of thinking that was hostage to the comparison between a system that was no longer there and a system that was the only one that that triumphed, but that was keeping itself alive with just this ghost of this other system that anything that smacks like socialism Mm. or anything that smacks like ideas of equality is inherently dangerous because it will take you back to this world that nobody wanted to be in. And I think, in part, this is exactly what got lost in the dissident movements of the 90s in a number of East European countries, was that um, those projects of emancipation, which I think were very important freedom and democratizing projects, were very quickly hijacked and turned into very specific projects for specific kinds of societies, which then many of these societies did become, Mm. which weren't necessarily part of the project to begin with. Now, of course, you know, it's hard to say counterfactually what should have been done or what could have been done better then. But I think by engaging with those experiments then, we can now maybe recover the spirit of those efforts and think about what did they try to do and how can we channel that dissidence and bring it back to the reality that we live in now and what kind of inspiration can we find to challenge the status quo. But um, what is freedom? Um, So I think in the book there are these different ideas of freedom and I think it will mean different things to different people and I don't want to I mean I have my take on what I think it is and it happens to be quite similar with that of my grandmother perhaps with a little political coda which I don't think she had so for me freedom is what we find in our capacity for moral agency and it's something that inherently we all have as human beings who have reason. It's something that you cannot not have if you have the ability to reason and to think and to make choices about you know, what is good and what is bad. When do I need to compromise? When can I not afford to compromise? So every time we engage in a moral dilemma, I think we exercise moral agency. And every time we exercise moral agency, we are responsible for the consequences that we produce through that moral agency. And that shows us that we are free. So it's something that we experience and explore every time we are moral agents. But, and this is something I think that my grandmother didn't quite articulate it like this. Uh, you know, she didn't have a, f- a theory philosophically for it, but I think she had an intuition that this is ultimately why she remained free and why she could say that she retained her dignity precisely because she retained this ability to make moral choices. But for me, it's not enough to discover this at an individual level. I think that capacity that we discover as individuals, this inner freedom that we have to make moral choices, should also be reflected in a world that enables people to interact with each other as moral agents. And so I can make these moral choices in my own life. I can make my, I can choose 
what kind of dilemmas, what kind of compromises, how I respond to these dilemmas. But if I don't live in a society where those moral choices are in some ways also part of the structure in which I live, then I will always be confronted with this sense of alienation between my inner freedom and the unfreedom that you experience as a society. And so this, this conflict will be more and more present and more and more difficult to resolve. And so I think it's part of discovering this inner moral freedom that with that discovery, we also discover a kind of critical capacity to engage with the societies in which we live and to see where they fail to realize that ideal of moral relations and to criticize those capacities when they do that. And that's why for me, it's really important, for example, when I talk about the critique of capitalism or when I talk about the structural unfreedoms that we experience, it's really important to say, look, we don't live in a moral world because we don't live in a world in which people relate to each other as ends in themselves. People in a capitalist world, they see each other as sources of profit or they are willing to forego what we get in terms of morality and reciprocal relations for the sake of saying, well, look, you know, these decisions need to be made, these compromises need to be made. And so I think that's what gives me at least a kind of critical grip on the society in which I live to connect this sense of inner moral freedom with the lack of moral relations at a societal level and which gives you a kind of basis for the critique of the society in which you live. Is that also maybe part of the reason why the book is so successful at this moment? I mean, it's beautifully written, it's a point story, but it's also coming at a, point, a moment when freedom is very much, I mean, it has been occupied, um, sort of hijacked in a way by market forces or reduced to sort of liberal democracy or the adjacent market form. Um, so freedom is de-spiritualized or it's not a spiritual or moral force anymore. And, and as we talk sometimes in this podcast so from, <laughs> about the return of the 90s and wanting mm. to avoid that in some way, but never able to really avoid that because we were chancellor from the 90s in yeah. Germany. It's, it's still a topic. Um, uh, so I wonder how you see it's always difficult maybe to zoom out from what other people make of your book, but I found it also specifically moving how the FT treated your book. It seems it's a weird moment of, of not even reckoning, but, but in, in the time in, 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 for, the, for the FT Can writer. Just time passing, very, or yeah, it, he was very, he was very new, personally affected, yeah. this Alex, uh, Alex Russell. Yeah, sort of time and passing and looking back at that. So I don't know. If, if, Is there an openness now to discussing uh, freedom? in a more complex... Uh, I'm just trying to simplify your question. <laughs> yeah. No, it's also no. about freedom in a more sort of complex sense, but also yeah. sort of to look at the failures in a more, in a less hostile way, yeah. sort of in a constructive way, maybe. Yeah, I think that's certainly part of why the book has been successful, even in contexts that don't have any necessary interest in Albania. Or, you know, I remember when we were selling the rights for the book in the US that we were worried that... And in fact, publishers, many of them told us as much. They said, look, nobody even knows where Albania is in the United States. So why would they buy a book which is about an Albanian story? And I think the reason it's been successful is that people see in the extreme, both of the kind of communist spirit and of the liberal spirit, they also see it as a story of crisis and as a story of identity shifting, as a story of beliefs that are shattered, and also a story of this necessary distance between an ideological conception of freedom, someone that tells you in the media through the education system through what you perceive in society, this really is freedom, this way of understanding politics, this way of understanding economics, this way of understanding social relations and everything else is wrong. And 
living in a world in which that is no longer the case because we see the cracks everywhere you know with the pandemic but even before that with the financial crisis with the global system and so i think it's true that this has made people read the book and made the book resonate with them in the sense that it's a book of exploration and it's a book that asks a lot of questions and maybe asks reader to ask themselves what they think their conception of freedom is by giving them these different models of humans that each of them has their own view of freedom and you know you have my mother's one and some people find that appealing and you have my father's one and some other people find that appealing and then you have my grandmother's one and it doesn't really I don't think the book as such tries to resolve it for them it just presents them these different conceptions and then people can choose and for that reason also I think it's been successful because it resonates with people from various political persuasions in not shutting conversations down, in being very open and saying, look, if we all care about freedom, then let's have a conversation about societal projects and how we can bring this forward. And without precluding that you, just because you have a libertarian conception of freedom, you are, you know, stupid somehow or narrow-minded or only interested in yourself or vice versa, that, you know, if you're someone who is interested in this more social ideal of freedom, then you must necessarily be totalitarian and oppressive and not care about individuals and so on. So I think in some ways it perhaps also speaks to the fact that people perceive this as a time in which there are very strong polarized political opinions mm. about what freedom consists of and they translate into political projects that are also very exclusive and the book is open in being an, an invitation to try and go beyond that and to engage in a conversation that ultimately is a kind of democratic conversation or what democracy should aspire to be. Having said that, I have my own views of, you know, what system I live in and how I think it's delivering and, you know, what people, how we should criticize our societies. And so from my personal perspective now, not as the author of the book, I mean, with the book, I'm very happy when people see it as an open book and really as an invitation and really as a space for dialogue. But if I were to give my own take on the world, I would say that it's not enough to be critical. And so the book resonates because it's critical and it asks people to be critical. But it's also important to think constructively and what are which parts of the system that you're living in are you going to challenge? And on that front, I don't really see a lot of willingness to actually challenge mm. the system with new projects. I see that people are want to criticize and want to be critical but it leads to a kind of skepticism about everything and um, I wish from that, from that skepticism we would develop a conversation that would be a little bit more constructive in terms of proposals put forward and so on. Can we explore these concepts a bit more? Uh, yeah. I mean it's all there so she sure. says I have ideas and um, what, 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 what was that? <laughs> what, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> no I, I'm just I'm just curious because you say uh, if I was asked I can yeah, yeah, point yeah. to the system failures and mm. to how to change that. And the question would be, where would you start? Well, I mean, I would start with this combination of how we understand economic and political power, in especially West. So I can only speak for, as I say, the societies in which I live. And different societies have different problems, and there's a number of problems that are also context-specific. But I say that in the advanced capitalist democracies, the biggest problem is the relationship between capitalism and democracy. And I personally think that if a society is capitalist, it's very hard for it to be democratic. Because to live in a democratic society means to be 
equally represented by the system whose rules and laws you subscribe to. And so we are equally, all of us, affected by the law. We all abide by the law, we respect the laws, we accept the systems that we live in, but the opportunities that we have for democratic voice within those systems are curtailed by the capitalist structure that we live in. Because if you're in a structure where you have these massive asymmetries of economic power, then someone who has more wealth will also have more possibilities for political voice. And for me, both, for example, in the European Union, but also outside the European Union in the United States, I don't see a lot of willingness to question this fundamental connection, which I think is problematic between capitalism and democracy. People will say we need to improve democracy, but nobody will say we need to go beyond capitalism. And for me, that's really the starting point of improving democracy. Now, we could have, I may be wrong, and I'm happy to have a discussion around this, but I don't see that this is really discussed even, or that it's part of public debate. But that's interesting because I'm, I'm I'm wondering about that because when you think when when you discuss inequality, for example, wealth inequality or um, inequality in uh, whatever assets you're discussing, you always you usually in the public discourse it's about unfairness. So it's about it's not fair that this person has so much money than the other. But what you're talking about is more uh, how it affects democracy, how it affects us as citizens, how yeah. it affects us in terms of our ability to. Um, Yeah, to make our voices heard or uh, yeah. affect the structures of society, yeah. Yeah. and that's um, I agree uh, that that's um, more or less not present. In uh, it's easier in a way, uh, and do you think it's more intuitive in a way uh, in the way our our societies are structured today today to talk about the unfairness in in terms of uh, cap. Capital or money. Um. Yeah, but I think it it is more intuitive. But I think it can also be misleading yeah, because no, when I you agree. talk about democracy and representation, and what when I talk about democracy, I don't just mean national democracy. I also mean global democracy. So I also mean not just the structures of representation that we have within our own sovereign national states, but also the structures of representation that we have at the international level. Where again, I think the legacy of histories of exploitation and injustice and colonialism and historical arbitrariness with which big countries, now wealthy countries, have engaged with smaller countries. The, that legacy is very much part of the international institutions that we have and who makes the rules and who abides by the rules. And so if you come from a small country, you're often at the mercy of a larger country, often with a colonial history and so on. And I think talking about democratic representation and this standing before the law, not just the national law, but also the, the law that rules, that structures international relations between states, brings on the one hand this kind of basic equality that we all have as human beings. You know, we all do the same thing. We all stand by the law. We all respect the, the rules and the system that we live under. But on, but on the other hand, it also reveals this gap between this basic equality that we all have and the basic inequality of the way in which that law shapes our lives. Because mm -hmm. it matters if you're a rich person in a rich country, it matters if you're a rich person in a poor country, it matters if you're a poor person in a poor country, and all of that matters for representation. Whereas when you talk about just material inequalities, you could say, well, you know, of course Britain is going to have a higher standard of living than Albania. I mean, you know, they have different histories, they have made their wealth in different ways and so on. And that doesn't, I think, the discussion around democracy and unequal representation and what that does to freedom, I think brings forward at a much more basic level this asymmetry in the way in which we are all affected by these structures. And I think maybe also helps to start a conversation that goes beyond nations and national histories and mm. national politics. 
But do you think, uh, can I, yeah, uh, when you think about capitalism, do you think of it as a binary, as a binary thing? It's like either capitalism or, or non-capitalism, because I'm thinking about coming from Sweden, which is, has a social democratic history, and it's also, we haven't talked about the, your father, but he uh, represents a, a different kind of thinking in your in your book. So it's kind of this idea of mitigating uh, markets or embedding markets in a, in a social structure and uh, maybe um, increasing the the room of carving out a bigger sphere for mm-hmm. democracy, but within a, a market-based uh, economic system. Do you believe, uh, do you think of it, uh, well, going back to my question, do you think of it as a binary thing, capitalism or non-capitalism, or are there degrees of freedom that you can um, aim for? Yes. Also within the nation states. I'm just I'm thinking in a practically here, like <laughs> what should I do? I think thinking of what I can do back home basically. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think I think what so one thing is to talk about capitalism and one thing is to talk about markets. Mm. So I think you can have market interactions that are not capitalist markets. You can have free markets that operate with a socialist structure of ownership and so on. And in fact, there's lots of studies and you know uh, discussions around how that would work out and what kind of model of the economy. And for me, these are the conversations that need to happen. So I think that there are spaces for opportunity and for exploring and for having a politics around these questions. But if you don't challenge the way in which capitalism understands profits mm. and the way capitalism understands the human being and this idea that you know there's there's a number of elements that are core to the ideology of free market capitalist freedom which is you know the hayek the milton friedman discussions around we own up to the consequences we know that the market will produce remainders we know that there will be unemployment but these things are all costs that we have to accept and to me that discourse needs to be challenged on moral grounds and that discourse needs to be wrapped up and said look this belongs to a past or this belongs to a world that is not a moral world and now let's talk about how we can do this differently and let's have many different projects and so i think that is real democracy in a way when you see what is it that constrains democracy what is it that constrains interactions between people and then have politics that enables you to have a real democratic debate around alternatives and around how you might do this differently. But if you're living in, you know, European Union that can't even tax wealth properly, or, you know, you live in this world yeah. where there is this kind of glaring, or you live in the United States where you have all these discussions around campaign finance and how lobby groups pervert democratic political debate. If all of these things are still on the table and they're still part of that as some as though some something that's kind of acceptable to the system, then you can't explore these other opportunities. And that's why it's really important for me to be very radical in the critique of capitalism on that front so that you can have then different projects politically that explore alternatives. You said a lot of times explore. I think that's very indicative. And going back to what you said before about the 90s, something I realized that the 90s was not only the problem who won, but also clearly who lost. We said the alternatives which got lost. Um, And you also said now there should be spaces to explore those alternatives. But are there spaces to do that. Where would there be? I mean, there's, I think, part of the Web3 or the blockchain ethos is so grounded on that, but I think that it's not proving um, sustainable in, in many ways. Uh, I was just curious, where would you start changing that system from a non-binary, uh, from, from, a, from a binary 
ideological constellation to something much more flexible, exploratory, experimental. Mm. Would you need to start with a very radical critique of capitalism, the way it works today? Or like, yeah, what's, do you start with exploring or with... Executing. Executing, <laughs> criticizing. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, you need to do both in a way. I think yeah. you need to be, to rule out certain things and to say this is unacceptable and, you know, let's have, are we all on board that this is not a moral world, that the, a world in which wealth influences politics in this way is not acceptable. And can we please, when we have that conversation, not have discussions around, oh, you're being an idealist, or this is utopian, people will never do that. Because often I find that discussions of that level get constrained by these completely arbitrary responses around what is feasible and what is not feasible. And in democracy, and I often get this response, you know, people say to me, you're such a dreamer, you're an idealist, you have this belief in human nature and so on. But You know, in the meantime, we're not putting these things under the table because we are making feasibility and the kind of feasibility of these projects, this really hard constraint, which may turn out to be really flexible if people try to be radically democratic. So this is being used as something that prevents an argument from entering public space, this idea that, you know, it's going to go wrong, it's a mistake, it's flawed, it's not feasible, people are not like that. And it turns very quickly into, and this is why it's really important to recover these discussions around human nature, it really turns very quickly into a conception of human nature whose dogmatism I don't understand. So if we are happy, prepared, all of us, to allow for having a conversation that, look, people can be both this and this, then why are you immediately shutting down alternatives by saying, oh, but they really, really, what they really, really are is evil and selfish and they will never do this and they will never go for this moral world that you have in mind. This is just a philosopher's dream and so on. I, I say, if it's open, then, you know, let's continue with the assumption that it's open. And if it's not open, then at least be honest about what you're supporting. And this is the kind of difficulty that I often have. The spaces. Where would the yeah. spaces so, be? I mean, I think there are political spaces everywhere, actually. So I think there's lots of social movements that challenge the, the status quo. There's lots of intellectual currents that challenge in the education system. There's lots of discourses that are like that. I don't think the problem is so much that there are no spaces. For me, the problem is that these spaces are not coordinated that there aren't political agents, there aren't political parties, there aren't agents that are sufficiently connected to institutions that are able to both listen to these concerns and to try and coordinate across the board, for example, in Europe, to make those concerns part of the agenda. So they're often either very in a minority or they're kind of left as irrelevant. Or And again, this is something that, uh, talking about the 90s, I think this is one of the most interesting things to have emerged from the 90s is this complete split between a left, and I talked about this a little bit when I was discussing Brexit and stances towards Brexit in, in Britain back a few months ago, a few years now ago, but this, this left which is completely split between what I call the left of the squares and the left of the institutional buildings. Yeah. And this idea that on the one hand you have this kind of grown-up left, which is the idea, you know, we've done this, we've done the protest movements, we've seen how this all goes wrong, and now we are going to be responsible people and we are going to talk compromise and we're going to talk institution building and make constructive proposals and come up with policy on the one hand, which then ends up being responsible for a lot of problematic and to own up to a lot of problematic episodes and incidents in the 90s, including, you know, the various Iraq wars and so on. 
And then on the, on the other hand, a left that completely confuses, refuses to engage with any of that and is just, you know, flagging the flags, waving the flags and holding onto the squares and being just a protest left that doesn't communicate. And for me, it's really important to recover a sense of the left that is wide enough that it, and capacious enough that it can capture everyone, but on the other hand, also radical enough that it's prepared to challenge the status quo. Because for me, the left of the institutions was really appropriated by capitalist discourse. I mean, the sense that a center-left, which has become responsible, that is part of government and so on, the sense that it would challenge capitalism is now just sounds crazy. And, and yet this was the left for, for quite a long time in the 20th century. And I'm sure in Scandinavia, this was even more so mm. the case on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have this completely sectarian left that just retreats to very small, symbolic kind of grandstanding and then but doesn't really take responsibility in a way and doesn't really even want a conversation that goes beyond what people already agree on. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering something I'm also wondering about when I read your book and I came to, to the very end of the book and at the end of the book you say that uh, when you've seen the system change once as you did uh, growing up in Albania it's it's not difficult to believe it can change again and And um, to your question of like holding on to that moral duty uh, or of um, what it, or what it is to be a human being, and just do you actually believe this, or is it just something that you uh, have, feel you have a duty to believe that you did? because I, my, and my question is I guess about capitalism because. How, It just today looks like the 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 grip of capitalism uh, in terms of our democratic systems, any t kind of power you might think of, power over our attention, natural resources, dem democratic systems, just seems stronger than ever. So, how do you do? You, do you agree with that? And how do you reconcile your than uh, ardent belief in, in the possibility of system change with yeah. the current situation which seems so extreme in a yeah, sense right. and where the grip is of capitalism is so uh, strong. Yeah, but that's this is exactly with this question that the meaning of that sentence yeah. becomes live, right? When you've yeah. seen a system change once. So if you had lived in communist Albania, yes. you, my parents thought this was going to be there until the end of their lives. Right. And they were so unprepared for everything that changed and for the change when it happened, precisely because they had gone on their life. And it's not just about communist Albania. You know, if you lived under, you know, the Catholic Church in the 12th century, nobody would believe that this system of thought would ever come to an end. And this is partly why I think... Or even under Swedish social democracy in the same... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, right. kidding, not kidding. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So I think in every, you know, in every pervasive ideology, that ideology, the mark of that ideology being really pervasive is that people just can't see the world differently mm. from how that ideology presents it to them. You know, they think, well, capitalism. And yet, on the other hand, this idea that I think is really important and which I often invoke in the book, that history changes and system, history is system change. Mm. The state wasn't there always. Capitalism wasn't there always. All these are human-made structures. We naturalize them, and so we now think of natural of, of capitalism as an earthquake or as this kind of natural phenomenon that is just with us. We were born in it. We're not going to change, and we're not going to ever leave it. But it is a perspective at the end of the day, and it is the, the problem with that perspective is that it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. The more you believe in it, the more, of course, it stays. The less you believe in it, the more likely it is to change. Mm. And that's what why hegemonic 
intellectual influence is really important and having these kind of different conversations and why the question of spaces is one, of course, at one level, it's a question of political organization and people talking to each other and making things happen and making protest movements happen. But at another level, it really is also about discourses circulating and what, how, how these discourses circulate and how people engage with them. Yeah, it's about ideas in the end. And as you say, it's a bit frustrating and strangely um, humor, so f full of humor to see how reductive, as you say, the basis is for a political ideologies or agendas. And, and this becomes, as you said, sort of true in the way that um, you see human beings. And it's nicely explored in the beautiful book of David Graeber and David Wengrove about um, the dawn of everything, how humanity sort of conceived it or was conceived of looking back words and how Hobbes and Rousseau had some very reductive views on how humans are and that has a consequence until today. And so you have these binary choices seemingly. Um, and I would just wonder again in, in the time of um, in, in how time works, um, if, if, if we have enough time to sort of get rid of these binary forces and, and where can we have a much more complex um, elastic, fluid understanding, experimental again of, of how, and that's in a way what democracy is. Really, it's, it's not a fixed. Should be, yeah. It should be. It's not. An, yeah. It's not something. It's not an answer. It's a method somehow. Exactly. Yeah. And how? Yeah. Do you see? So, so, so I think two questions. Where are these ideas? I mean, I, I guess they are. It's, it's always sort of really problematic to say where are the ideas, and it just shows my own ignorance of <laughs> the multiplicity of, of activists and who, who work on, on things. And, and then the question of time, so if we don't need to talk about climate change, but really just, as you said, the, the system is so rigid, it seems, is there enough time and then again space to explore these ideas in a, in a meaningful way? Or is this, um, is it going to happen or is it not going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so this is Come the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think, so this is the kind of, uh, this is a really, that's a, a, actually a really good question because philosophically this is a question of progress, right? Yeah. So when these philosophers in the 18th century, all these 18th century philosophers, they start talking about uh, are there any guarantees of historical progress? This is exactly what they mean. The sense that you live in this post-secular world in which, you know, religion doesn't really give you a lot of comfort. And the fragility of the conditions under which we all build the world together with as humans are, is such that it doesn't make you have a lot of confidence, right? Because you know that you're flawed and you know everybody else can also is not equally motivated and so on. And this is why I love this part, it, it's Kant that says this, but I think it also appears at some point in something that Marx says, where there's this discussion around prophetic history and, you know, is there progress in history or can we have to, and, and Kant says, to talk about progress in history is to assume that there is some kind of standpoint from which we can see this progress moving forward. And this is a kind of prophetic stance that is almost quasi-religious in its attitude and in its belief. And there is only one thing Kant says, and I think Marx also picks up, and I don't remember exactly where, but he picks up on this, where he says there's only one thing in which this belief in progress is possible, and it is the case in which the prophet himself or herself makes the events that they prophesize about. 
In other words, you don't, you're not bringing something other than outside, you know, what humans do. You are talking about human interactions. And so if you believe in human agency, if you believe in morality, if you believe that we are free agents, then the more you believe it, the more what you believe in will happen or become. And the less you believe in it, the less it will happen because you will be, in a way, you're kind of hostage to yourself. And I find this really powerful, this idea that, you know, prophetic history or what was called teleological history or whatever is justified to the extent that the prophet makes the events that they are foretelling. Because that is actually who, what we are and what we're doing right now. You, it's just us. There's nothing else. Nobody else will help you. Um, it's not really reasonable to think that there will be tomorrow a God that will save us. And, and yet, you can recover that faith in two ways. You can, you can say, well, it's just us and therefore it's going to be horrible. Or you can say it's just us and therefore if we believe that it will work out, it will work out. So, yeah, that's why. Is it going to happen? Yeah, if you make it your duty, it will happen. <laughs> Yeah. And where? I mean, so if, um, this is nicely optimistic, but so if just to point to the contradictions, so there's democracy and capitalism, so this would be the process to get rid of the other one. Democracy to get rid of capitalism, or to change capitalism, but you say democracy doesn't exist, at least in the liberal democratic well, I mean, form, so what's the... Look, look, so I think to say that democracy doesn't exist is too strong, because obviously there are historically many pro-democracy movements yeah. have opened up spaces. Now, the fact that they don't open up these spaces permanently, the fact that they make compromises, the fact that they do this in these capitalist environments that makes every compromise fragile because you're at the mercy of these strong, powerful interest groups that, you know, don't have an interest in people maintaining these gains that they have made, doesn't mean that these movements haven't been there and the gains haven't been made. Which is partly why I think, for example, now there's this really important debate on the rule of law. And some people think, well, why is the left, you know, why do we care about the rule of law? In Britain especially, this has been really important uh, recently, but I think also more generally, this idea that, you know, why would you, it's a capitalist state, so the law is, but it's never either one or the other. There are spaces and the, there's a tension. And I think the tension needs to res be resolved in the favor of having more democracy, less capitalism progressively. And the less capitalism you have, the more democracy you will have. But it's not, it's a, it's a nuanced space. It's not either or. And it's important to bring out the contrast and to say you can build on the history of democratization and on the movements that we're familiar with and on the struggles that go on all over the world. I mean, the other problem is that we are very parochial in the West and just looking at the West and thinking mm. about what happens here. But, you know, there's countless indigenous struggles in the Amazon, in Latin America, in Asia, movements and no, no, number of... Uh, processes in motion that are pro-democracy and democratization processes that are also anti-capitalist processes and we just need to connect to those and yeah take that forward no but i like your i mean i like your idea or the concept of being so stuck in the historical moment and being unable to kind of zoom out and uh, get the necessary perspective because that also really locks you down in an idea in a feeling of uh, non of ch change change not being possible but and I, I'm, I was just thinking while you were talking that it's also a fact that we live in a very extreme, I mean, it's such an extreme time if you look at the, what you said, Georg, about the history of, of, um, of human life. Um, it's, it's a very, very extreme idea that we live with, with now that markets should be not embedded in any social, any anything. 
should not there should be no other values basically uh, represented in uh, in human interaction and I mean it doesn't feel sustainable so that's maybe on the upside <laughs> that's what climate science says as well that's what climate science says as well but it's not only uh, it's also um, because I in my view it's counter it's not morally sustainable it's not morally sustainable it's counter it, it's counterintuitive it's it, it's not it's not it's not a good fit with human nature and I guess that's what you're saying yeah yeah no that's right yeah so yeah there's definitely. a tension there that needs to it needs to I don't know something's got to give at some point yeah. human nature is what it is so yeah yeah hopefully no, I, I don't know if but my and we had a actually a fight about this last night because I said I want to ask um, Leah about uh, surveillance capitalism and how these very sophisticated tools of manipulation also kind of ties us down to this extreme to this extreme form of capitalism and it makes it makes change and makes um, uh, makes organization against uh, organizing more more difficult and how, what do you think about that because that's something that I worry about a lot that it's just much more difficult today because we're so manipulated by algorithms and yeah mm -hmm. our attention is so um, yeah it's it's led somewhere else and makes it more difficult to organize politically and think about other things than to be a consumer basically yeah I agree with that I mean I, I, I agree with that but I sometimes have I have a lot of students who work on this question and yeah. you know, write PhD projects or mm. whatever and I, I completely see how our lives our choices in social media are taken over by corporations and but i also personally maybe i'm wrong in this i don't see that this is a massive qualitative gap from what capitalism has done all along so i see this as a question of scope and further extension and further appropriation yeah. of our of our human spaces in a way by these capitalist entities but i don't see that something new is happening here that wasn't happening before already you know maybe we didn't have facebook and so on but we were still we were still and, and the frankfurt school adorno and so mm. on have written about this stuff already in the 30s about the power of advertising sure. and the making mm. of commodities and how this the fetish of commodities pervades people's imagination yeah. and, and you yourself grew up options. in a society where propaganda exactly. was almost exactly. perfect I guess. exactly yes. so there are so i think in a way as long as we retain awareness and we kind of retain the capacity. But that's the problem. How do you that? retain awareness when you're manipulated, when your attention is constantly manipulated? But this that's is why, <laughs> right, but so this is why we go back to the moral theory, right? Yeah. It's not possible to lose that okay. completely if you have this conception of a human being as having this critical capacity. So that's what reason is. It's, it cannot be ever completely appropriated. Yeah. And it needs to be said that it can never be completely appropriated. Because someone, will see, someone will see this <laughs> and they will notice that there's something wrong, just like yeah. they did in communist Albania. So people mm. will eventually figure out they will find they will find the little antennas or they will find the kind of signals to Italy or whatever this is the yeah. the the analog in a way to this you can be in total censorship and total oppression and still find margins of yeah. agency. And that's the story in the book that yeah. you were were able at some points with a certain angle of your antenna to exactly. get the news from Italy even in yeah. Albania and get the counter. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to say I told you, uh, <laughs> but it's basically what I told you. No, uh, it's not at all what you told me. It's totally what I told you. Leah made a much uh, better argument. No, totally, of course. Uh, <laughs> she's a professor, I'm not, so there's a distinction here. Um, but, but maybe it's also to your point of you come from <laughs> Sweden of the 70s, not to your point of that, so for you, you come from Sweden of the 70s, I come to Germany of the 70s. 60s, you were born in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> but growing up in the 70s at least, um, so maybe part of the, also the appeal of the book is that you come from this 
yeah, radical experience and, 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 and that visceral existential dimension which we then in the semi-historical pornographic way might consume and read Kostler and think, oh, this is crazy. Mm. But we didn't, we have no access actually to, mm. to that. Mm. Or it's quite difficult to access that and or to, to, to that opening up the spaces as well as, as well for, for thinking and action. Mm. I don't know if, if that makes... That well, it does. And I think in a way, I also think of this. So, you know, for many Albanians and maybe also many people who come out of this East European experience, our history of, of system change is often seen as a history of trauma and tragedy. And for me, yes, there is a tra part of it that is obviously tragic and traumatic, but there's a part of it that is about thinking and recovering agency and having these experiences of change, which I, I think are really important when you look to the future. And so I often say when I'm, you know, in Albania, we tend to think, oh, it's been our history as a nation is a history of defeat and trauma. And I think, yeah, but there is a kind of luck in being a from a country or from a place that has this wealth of experience of being oppressed and being dominated and being kind of controlled by great powers first and then by your own government after and trying to find these spaces of freedom. I think it brings a kind of insight into the world that other people don't have. And it's really sad because, and this is another uh, reason why I wanted to write the book and I, I wrote it in the way I wrote it, is that there is often an approach to smaller countries outside the kind of core, which is what I always call the claim to know better. You know, the other guys, the more powerful guys, they know better than you. They even know your own history better than you. So they come and they tell you what you need to do and so on. And recovering this sense of historical awareness is recovering the sense of agency that actually you shouldn't be approached as someone who is just a victim and has no knowledge. Because yes, it's true you grew up in a totalitarian society. It's true that there was censorship. But it's also true that because of that, people find much more sophisticated and nuanced ways of uh, connecting to each other, which you may not become at all aware of when you approach this context. And sometimes you approach them in this ignorance and in this claim to know better. And then you discover that the situation on the ground is very, very different. Mm -hmm. And suddenly your liberal paternalism is shown to be flawed. And I think this is such a, again, talking about the 90s, is such a pervasive experience in the 90s that people approach this context as contexts that were defeated, as victims of history, as you know, products of trauma and so on. And there is a kind of paternalism in engaging with people there, which recovering this alternative perspective on your own history, which is, look, yeah, it is a history of trauma and so on, but that doesn't make me a pure victim. It also gives me agency and it gives me things to say in a public global debate that are worth hearing because the, the big guys will also benefit if they hear it. And I think that's really important part of telling, this, telling our story in this different way. And coming out alive. Um, that's also important uh, at the end. So, um... Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. On that note, um, hopeful note. Yeah, definitely. On life, uh, yeah. Alive. Um, thank you, Leopi, for this conversation. Thank you, fantastic conversation, me. and we recommend everyone to read uh, to read your fantastic book. Thank you. Thanks thank for taking so the much. time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.